Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. I am John von Hortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. You can find Commentary Magazine at our new URL, www.commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. So, you know, for weeks I was ranting about how stupid the unvaccinated are and you're stupid not to get vaccinated and what's the matter with you. And part of the subtext here was, and I think I made this pretty clear, uh, my fear that what was going to happen as a result of this is actually what happened yesterday, which is that the number of uh, unvaccinated people was going to lead the public health authorities in the United States to reimpose or seek to reimpose mandates on behavior that were going to fall unequally on the vaccinated, on the people who have done their uh, due diligence for themselves, for their families, for everybody. Um, And that is precisely what happened yesterday with this extraordinarily confusing and frankly wildly irresponsible new CDC guidance issued primarily by CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Um, And I want to be calm and reasoned as we talk about this because I am in such a white-hot frenzy and frankly kind of a bit of PTSD because, uh, you know, the last 15 or 16 months have been the most difficult uh, of my life and of the lives of a lot of people. And, uh, And the idea that rather than looking forward to uh, our liberation or sort of living through the liberation and looking forward to our liberation from uh, the COVID regime and our and and being governed by our constant consideration of this disease, this guidance suggests not exactly a semi-permanent, but at least for the foreseeable future, a life in which we remain living in the total shadow of this pandemic. And I am I am finding it very anxiety provoking. To think about this as anxiety-provoking as the thought of being around, uh, as the thought of being around unmasked people was to masked people in the summer of 2020, and so I want to try to remain cool in our analysis of this while confessing that I am not really cool at all. So uh, let's try to tease out some of the strands of what the CDC has announced. They have announced that in counties with more than 50 cases of COVID per 100,000 testing over a seven-day average, uh, people should go masked indoors, particularly if they are around the immunocompromised, among whom, it is now said, we are to consider our own children as immunocompromised because they can't yet get the vaccine. I'm going to point out again, as I pointed out 500 billion times on this show, that the number of Americans under the age of 18 who have died in the course of this pandemic that has killed more than 600,000 Americans is fewer than 400. Okay? Fewer than 400 out of 600,000. Using the term immunocompromised or relating the term immunocompromised to... uh, the uh, 50 or so million people under the age of 12 or 60 billion or so people under the age of 12 as though they are people with, you know, uh, who are, you know, on chemo or have, you know, suppressed immune systems because of a disease is itself wildly irresponsible. It is a mischaracterization of what, of this unique fact of the pandemic, which is that it seems to unlike all uh, all previous ones to evade children fine okay so uh so we are to mask up in the presence of our own children if they are uh under 12 and we are to mask indoors uh 
as long as we are in counties with 50 cases per 100,000 over a seven-day rolling average, which basically means everywhere but rural places. I mean, if you look at the map that they put out, there's a lot of red and it's a lot of rural red and all of this. But, you know, like New York City uh, is one of those places uh, because there are more than 50 cases per 100,000. So Manhattan is one of those places. And so uh, I am now, and Abe is now uh, going to be living under the siege. I believe DC also. Um, maybe Noah, you're not, because I think you're in a, you're not in a red or orange county. <laughs> well, it's complicated. So I am in a yellow county. Which yellow is below, yellow is, right below the red and orange threshold. The red is the this. red is high, and the orange is substantial. I am also in a place that wouldn't observe this. For the most part, it doesn't matter whether you would observe it or not. I, I don't want to go into the who should or shouldn't because that mm, doesn't. No, no, I don't. Th- no, can that's I just say something about DC's level though? DC was actually not listed on the CDC's website yesterday morning as being in any sort of substantial. We've had very low case rates and and like one death in the last you know week or something that's been reported. But after see after the White House demanded that all its staffers wear masks and Kamala Harris was like, we got to put masks back on. Weirdly, the CDC then moved DC to the orange category, substantial transmission, which now means we are under this this same mask recommendation. So it's weird how that suddenly occurred right after the announcement, even though okay. the case, cases didn't. Not really that weird. <laughs> right, okay. I'm this trying not to sound paranoid, but you know, yeah. there it is. <laughs> okay, so anyway, uh, so that that is the standard. Why? So. Uh, we spent the day listening to Rochelle Walensky attempt to explain why. Why is the Delta variant is highly contagious? And it's spreading like wildfire among the unvaccinated. The guidance is for the vaccinated. So why? I mean, it's primarily for the vaccinated because the unvaccinated have already been told that they should be masked if they are unvaccinated everywhere. That was the guidance as it stood the change in the guidance has to do with people who are vaccinated. Why? Well, there appear to be two reasons or three reasons. One has to do with the possibility of breakthrough infection among the already vaccinated with the highly contagious Delta variant. And the fact that since the Delta variant apparently increases the viral load in the body of people who get the va- who get the Delta variant, uh, it is more contagious and therefore the vaccinated person will be highly contagious and therefore should be wearing a mask because the, the vaccinated person may not know that they have the Delta variant because it is a weak, because it does not really affect the vaccinated all that much. So they may have it without knowing it, and then they could be spewing it or what is shedding it or throwing it or whatever and making other people sick. Um, that's one explanation which we should get to. And the other is we're not really doing this because of the Delta variant. I mean, we are, but we're not because what we're really afraid of are the variants that might come down the path that will evade the vaccine's effectual, you know, uh, effectiveness. Those variants don't exist yet. It's not like there's one in, you know, Mozambique and it's coming. They don't exist yet. So the idea is we need to snuff out the Delta variant so it doesn't mutate into the Epsilon variant or whatever, or I think there already is an Epsilon variant. So I don't know what the Omega variant, Dr. whatever Michelle you want to call Walensky it. said yesterday, too, that we may be, the big concern, quote, the big concern is the next variant might emerge and just a few mutations potentially away could evade our vaccine. So you have to mask up for, uh, in, endure this uh, real onerous burden for hypothetical reasons. Um, and that's not completely ridiculous, but... According to their own data, insofar as we have it, um, you're far less likely to be transmissible. Uh, the CDC yesterday said transmission among uh, the, the vaccinated is much, much lower, as, as everybody freely admits. And you need to catch this thing in order to incubate it, in order to develop a strain. 
So once again, where's the risk to the vaccinated people from this, from this, their own reasoning, hypothetically, you have to contract this in order to be a a host to this new mutation that doesn't exist yet. Okay. Two things, because I have an answer, because John Berman asked Rochelle Walensky this very question this morning, and she gave an answer that is purely a hypothetical. This is not based on hard data. There, there are no hard data. As Scott Gottlieb said on NPR this morning, the CDC is not collecting data on breakthrough infections as a percentage of the vaccinated. Some people are doing it sort of like piecemeal if you can, but there is no, there is no existing standing database uh, in this respect. Uh, Mark Thiessen in the Washington Post and his research assistant or whoever did try to come up with a number. And I'm going to try to find this because this is, this, this is helpful the way he describes it. Okay. Now, this is what uh, Gottlieb says they're not collecting it properly, but using CDC numbers, Mark Thiessen writes in the Washington Post, as of July 19th, a grand total of 4,072 vaccinated Americans had been hospitalized with symptomatic breakthrough infections out of more than 161 million who have been fully vaccinated. That is a breakthrough hospitalization rate of less than 0.003%. Better still of those hospitalized, only 849 have died of COVID-19. That means the death rate from these breakthrough infections is 0.0005%. Now, uh, I'm not quite sure how he collected these numbers, but there there it is. So we have a the, the chance of you getting a breakthrough infection based on who has been hospitalized so far even if that rate triples, if that rate triples, it goes to 0.001% or 0.009% or whichever direction you go in in these numbers. Okay, just, just to make that clear. Now, here's what Walensky said when asked by John Berman. Why... Are the vaccinated being punished if the vaccine transmission is going from the unvaccinated to the unvaccinated? And here is what she said, quote, this is my deep repertorial skills because I sat down and I transcribed it. So you should all be very impressed that I sat down and transcribed it. If you're a vaccinated person and you're in one of those areas, as you said, a red zone or a sea of COVID, you have a reasonable high chance if no one is wearing a mask to interact with people who may be infectious. And so for every 20 people, one or two of them could get a breakthrough infection. One or two of vaccinated people. So according to Rochelle Walensky's hypothetical, your chance of getting a breakthrough infection if you are in a red zone around unmasked people and you are yourself unmasked is 5 percent. One out of 20. Possibly two out of 20, right? So that's 10 percent. The overall positive test rate for COVID in the United States over the last 18 months is three and a half percent. The current positive test rate during the Delta variant is 4.1 percent. So she is asking us to believe that despite the fact that the vaccines, as she says, are incredibly effective in preventing people from getting COVID, that there is nonetheless a 5 percent chance that you'll get COVID if you interact with an unvaccinated person and you are yourself vaccinated. That is insane. That number is ludicrous. She is, as Abe said in our text chain, spreading disinformation. This is disinformation. We have people being thrown off Facebook and Twitter for propagating misinformation about the pandemic. This is misinformation. She should be thrown off social media and she should be penalized. And there are people who are saying that people who spread misinformation should be prosecuted. Perhaps she should be prosecuted for spreading misinformation. And they say they have blood on their hands. That's the, that's that's the big line. The other, spent- the other 
thing that's returning, by the way, Walensky already spinning what yesterday's news is, uh, the reaction it's produced is saying, well, we might just have to do this for a few weeks. So we're right back. And, and as many people properly cynically noted, oh, so we're back to two weeks to stop the spread. We, we This is why we don't listen to this guidance. This is why people are cynical about this guidance. We spent the last several weeks talking about how terrible at calculating relative risk the unvaccinated, the adamantly unvaccinated population were. This is the same phenomenon. And you've interest, you've witnessed, I think, an interesting uh, condition over the last couple of weeks where the um, administrators and public health officials and even government officials in the federal government have stopped playing the game that this is a problem of red America. Um, they're now mandating vaccines insofar as they can for state and federal workers. Um, the VA is doing this. The White House is doing this. New York City is doing this. You had it Los Angeles uh, County health director, Barbara Ferrer, talk about the unvaccinated in very deferential and understanding terms, which is something you would have never heard from somebody in her position not too long ago, acknowledging, I think, the now impossible to ignore fact that quite a lot of this is occurring in uh, vaccine resistance is occurring uh, outside of major city centers in the sort of the orbit, uh, the uh, excerpts of, uh, of major cities. And in like places like the boroughs in New York City, where vaccination is under 50%, full vaccination is under 50%. Um, so to the extent that this is a problem, it is a problem of 30% of the country. The vast majority of this country has been convinced effectively by the messaging around this idea that you should get vaccinated to save yourself and save your loved ones. The rest are not reachable by this message. And there is no creativity around it. So all they can do is to continue to reach the people they've already reached and do the same thing they've already done and just keep doing it forever because they have no other idea how to do this. But let before we get to the resistance, let's continue on with trying to tease out why they did this in the first place. Um, Scott Gottlieb, the former commissioner of the FDA, who you know we sort of like made fun of for being a purveyor of doom. I mean, fun of or sort purveyor of doom and a message of of of, of gloom and doom. Uh, you know, during the worst, you know, during the summer and fall of 2020, was on NPR this morning saying uh, that this was a mistake. Like this, uh, the 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 vaccines work. Uh, you're muddying the message and whatever positive consequences might be derived in number terms from making people mask, which are, I think, highly questionable that any any benefit is to be gained from the remasking of the vaccinated. Nonetheless, whatever numbers are to be derived for this uh, are likely to be um, the opportunity cost is you're sending a message that the vaccines don't really work or that they might not work in the future. There's a lot of that too. Oh, we don't know. Maybe you'll need, you'll need a booster, whatever it is. If the goal is to convince, as, as Noah says in the creativity question, if the goal is just to convince 20% of the unvaccinated to vaccinate, so that we can achieve numbers that seem consistent historically with what we know about herd immunity, helping to kill off the rest of the, you know, the uh, lion's share of the COVID pandemic. Telling people not only that their lives won't change, but that the vaccine may be inefficient in keeping you from killing your grandmother because she's old or she might be immunocompromised. So that your behavior, you're getting the vaccine, the vaccine will not change anything, really. There's a huge opportunity cost to that message. It, it completely contradicts the effort to get people to get vaccinated. So okay, but could, before we get to resistance, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Christine. No, I was just going to add to that, though, that go we're ahead. missing another strand to the issue of why the Biden administration is doing this now. There's a political uh, piece here, too, which is that public sector unions who are major supporters of the Biden administration, particularly teachers unions, want this for two reasons. Number one, because they do not want to mandate that their own teachers get vaccinated, even though they're the ones at risk of illness in, in schools, not children. 
and they want the children to wear the mask to protect the adults who refuse vaccination and they want to use it and are using it in many school districts right now across the country as a bargaining chip in their contract negotiations with their with their uh, school districts. So that's there's a real political piece here. And that is a massive amount of money that's funneled to the to Biden and the Democrats from those unions. And they have a stake in this that has nothing to do with public health. I I am not entirely convinced of that argument the way I would have been months ago as to why they're doing it because I think that the that the danger the political danger to Biden and to the and to the sort and to the economic recovery and everything is so serious that you have to say they're not doing this because they're doing it for uh you know naked uh political reasons um it's just it, it the calcul the calculus is wrong. Uh, they're doing it because they have walked themselves into a corner. They've backed themselves into a corner on how they think about public health. This is how I look at this. Go ahead, Abe. Well, I think, I mean, it, there's two things here. I mean, in terms of the the whys, I think there's <clears throat> another um, sort of thread in this that um, was articulated yesterday by. Leanna Wen, Dr. Leanna Wen, who goes on CNN and writes in the Washington Post about, his, about you know, she's been sort of another doom and gloomer. Um, and she said, uh, this is good because the honor system doesn't work. In other words, this is aimed at getting the unvaccinated who aren't telling the truth about being unvaccinated to wear their masks in, in public. Um, because now if everyone has to, then they will be swept up um, in that as well. But in terms of the real reasons, John, I, I think you're, you're, that you're, you're starting to um, home in on it there. I think it is, the, it is the runaway relevance of public health professionals here. They have become um, the – their life's work has become the sort of center of – uh, the uh, uh, American um, experience now for a year and a half. And um, this is their, if they, if they cannot hang on to this moment and squeeze every last bit of juice out of it, um, they will never forgive themselves. I mean, I think that is actually the truth. Don't forget, they have been saying with, with the emergence of every uh, new variant that, that this, something like this was coming. So when they had anything to hang on to that could then justify them and say, see, I told you this was going to happen, they did it. That's why they're claiming that um, the, the, in, the spreadability or the, the virality of, uh, of um, the Delta variant, this is new science. That is what, uh, that is what uh, Dr. Fauci has said. That's what uh, Rochelle Walensky has said. They are justifying this as, See, we've now uncovered something that is new and scary, that is real. So you must listen to us now. But okay, but two things. One of which is let's if we if we we're almost saying that this is an act of bad faith, and I'm not sure it's an act of bad faith that they want to remain in the center. I think there it may emotionally, unconsciously, sort of you know, um, be what what is behind this, and I think that's a is a very serious case for that. But of course, that's not provable. I think what is the case is that Rochelle Walensky is a official in the public health world. She came in to this job. Uh, she has a thousand people that she knows from every conference she's been to in the last 20 years. And they probably email her constantly. And the bias of this field is for restriction. Um, not for uh liberation all things being equal they would like to keep things restricted because they are focused on this question of how do we eradicate covid if we can't but eradicate not, covid but, but no they're not <clears throat> okay they know that eradication is not possible they know that this is that coronaviruses are part of daily life that 25% of them make up the common colds that we experience on a daily basis they know that there won't be eradication. They, they're coy about saying it, 
And the reason why they're coy about saying it, the most uncharitable explanation for why they're coy about, about saying it is because they like this public health regime. A more charitable explanation is that they're trying to manipulate public opinion to believe that the outcome is possible to justify in the minds of the people that they really underestimate the intelligence of and who they have abject contempt for, that they will go ahead and just get vaccinated in order to pursue a regime that will eventually eradicate this disease. They would be doing a profound public service if they were to say that our objective here is to render this just another of the many coronaviruses you encounter on a daily basis. They won't say it. They can't say it. And the reasons why range from nefarious to, to you know, just merely uh, you know, bureaucratic inertia. But they're not saying that, John. They're not saying eradication. No, but they can't. Okay. The logic of their position is almost if a single person can get COVID around you, you should wear a mask for the rest of your life. I mean, that is the logic of this, right? You are vaccinated. You go around without your mask on. You're around somebody else who is unvaccinated. They Including give children. You, they Including give children you, who can't get vaccinated. Yeah. So everybody who's a parent right. of somebody under 12 should yeah. be masked in public anyway and should right. have been before. Right. Okay. But the whole point here is that you then will you, – you are just as much the possible font of disease as you were last year. It's not your fault. You did the right thing. You got – by the way, it's never anybody's fault if you get sick. But you did the right thing. You got vaccinated. Sorry, you're still a threat to your loved ones. Um, the logic of that is the logic of eradication. Because everybody who has anything is a threat to somebody. Anyone who has a, you know, anyone who has a cold is a threat to somebody else. We all know it. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, spouse has a cold or something like that you sort of like you don't you don't kiss until the whatever you know you don't hold hands however you want to people understand this implicitly that's where you're right Noah that there's this kind of bizarre belief that everybody is a moron and that they're, they're and and therefore you know they need to be guided in this way but of course the great secret and this is when we can start getting to the question of compliance and what's going to happen uh, going on here. But, uh, you know, the great secret here is that people uh, don't want to get sick and they don't want to infect others. And a lot of people are have decided not to get vaccinated because they are, I believe, wrongly associating vaccination with illness. They think that the vaccine is going to make them sick. That is their determination. And so, uh, this really doesn't necessarily contradict that overwhelming sense, which is why you wouldn't get vaccinated. You don't want to give it to your kids. It's going to make them sick. You don't want to get it. And by the way, just, just to remind people, in the early going, when people were getting vaccinated at the, at the beginning, there was a huge elite conversation about this constantly. How do you feel? How do you feel after your shot? Do you feel sick? Did you get sick? Oh my God. I was, I felt so awful the morning after I got my shot. I mean, it was two days. I was in bed. I couldn't even get out of bed. It was sort of like war stories from the, from the vaccinated. But you think that didn't have an impact on people? So it's like either I'm going to get vaccinated. And according to everything I read, I'm going to spend two days in an absolute misery twice, because if I get two shots, I'll be sick two times, miss four days of work. And like now I can still give the vac, I can still give the virus to my grandmother. So the hell with it, double time the hell with it. I'm not going to do it. So that's why we should talk more about compliance. Before we do, I want to talk to you about Aura. Aura, our first uh, sponsor today. Look, the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade. But as it has, security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more all in one easy to use app. Between your photos, finances, and devices and connections, your world is more online than ever. You maybe you have security systems in place for real life but you don't really have them for your online life and Aura can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. Here's a scary stat. Every 10 seconds, somebody becomes a victim of fraud or identity theft. What's worse? 23% of those people don't get their money back after the attack. If you think it could never happen to you, you could be their next target. Aura can help. 
It provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats, all in one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help you recover your stolen funds, and there's experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. This is a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access and three free months. When you visit Aura.com slash commentary, go to Aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for a free for a limited time. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. Okay. Noah, you're chomping at the bit to talk about how no one is going to comply with this. Please mm-hmm. do your no, worst. No okay. Only the people, the people who will comply with this are the people we don't need to comply with this. That's just the point of fact. And that's probably the desire, I think, in my part, in my view, because a lot of this is a, a, among the hoi polloi who support this sort of thing is merely to cocoon themselves in a protective environment where they don't see it. Um, and they won't see it because it's in redder parts of the city. It's in uh, more minority parts of the city. Um, And there will be a lot of noncompliance because it's already documented. A couple of weeks ago, we had the New York Times story about Los Angeles. It was like, oh, everybody's going, going back to masking. They're weary, but they're complying. And the story was all about how they weren't complying, about how difficult it was to enforce this in the brasseries of, of Beverly Hills. They're not even trying elsewhere in the city where you probably won't even see it. Um, but the effect of this sort of thing, in my view, is that there will be a lot of compliance in um, upwardly mobile, upscale, affluent, well-educated communities, and a lot of non-compliance elsewhere. And people will self-select for venues that do not enforce masking, for people who don't like masking. And that includes the vaccinated and unvaccinated alike. It's, it's not pleasant, no matter what you hear on Twitter. People don't love it. Um, and the effect of that will be to undermine our progress towards herd immunity because you are telling, you're creating incentives for the unvaccinated to seek out like minds, to seek out venues with no mitigation strategies in place where they will proceed to infect each other um, and create conditions where the vaccinated will similarly congregate and with mitigation measures in place that will have little to no effect. But the the, the outcome of that seems to me to, to be undermining our uh, our efforts to achieve herd immunity, the design should be to integrate as many unvaccinated into the much larger population of vaccinated people as possible to reduce the prospect of transmission, which the CDC says, by their own admission, is less likely if you're vaccinated. You're less likely to pick this thing up from somebody who's a, who's a carrier who's shedding virus. Um, so not only is this not an effective policy, it's actively counterproductive if the goal is to vaccinate more people. And I don't detect that that's the goal. Well, I don't think that's the goal anymore. There's also the issue of what about all of our small business owners in this country, the people who the, the ones who actually survived the pandemic and barely hung on and were finally able to reopen and people were coming back into their restaurants and their stores and their gyms and all these other places. Now what? So they are, they're facing a very challenging choice here. If they're in some of these areas where the claim is that it's high risk again and everybody has to mask up, they have to choose whether or not they're going to embrace these guidelines. Because remember, this isn't an edict. These are guide. This is guidance. You do not have to follow it. It is not law. It's guidance. But if a, but if like the mayor of D.C. says everybody's got to mask up indoors, these restaurants are going to see their business plummet again at just the moment where they're starting to crawl their way back. Gyms that, you know, independently operated gyms and places like that will have people who stop going to the gym again. I mean, this is really bad for our business owners in this country, too. And it and it and it goes either way. That's one of the reasons why federal governments aren't supposed to be doing the, stuff like this, because. You will have people who will say, ah, the hell with it if they have to go in and wear a mask. Or you will have people who say the hell with it if you if you if the business doesn't require a mask, because they'll say, Well, I'm not going there. I'm a little too nervous about, you know, it's indoor space. I don't know, and they're not requiring it. The CDC says, you know, so either way, you're screwed. 
that's part of the issue here. It's a Hobson's choice. That's the whole thing about these kinds of decisions is they need to be weighed practically the consequences and the benefits. And there is, and this I think goes to what Noah was saying. I do think that the goal is to vaccinate more, but that is not what was going through their heads when they decided to do this. What's going through their heads when they decided to do this is, oh my God, this Delta variant is really contagious. Uh, we got to do, we have to do something. It's the famous, um, remember there was a actor named, uh, I think his name was Andrew Shue, Elizabeth Shue's brother who was on Melrose Place. And he started a liberal activist organization that was called Do Something <laughs> in the in the 1990s. And if you think about it, it is that the is perfect summation. such a brilliant summation. obscure pop culture reference. I salute Thank you. you for that pop Thank culture you. reference. But, but in other words, like, we have to do something. Right. It's, this is part it, of the reason that we masked up in the first place was people need to be able to do something to restrict the flow or, you know, to do whatever they can to mitigate the effects of the virus. Otherwise, they're just going to live inside and crawl in a hole. We have to do something. Here are the things that we can think of. It was the but, stated. Yeah, it was the stated justification for when uh, Governor Cuomo uh, banned indoor dining in New York. He admitted that um, it was uh, represented a tiny fraction of um, the, the the spread of the virus, but it's what they could do. He said, "It's it's 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 all we can do. This is right. this is what we can control." But right, probably, and then, right. Yeah, go ahead on the question of compliance. Um, I think compliance could rise if the death numbers begin to rise, because that scares people that 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 uh, understandably that scares people even those who are following uh the data more granularly and understand that the that that those dying are the unvaccinated it is the sheer fact of those rising numbers after a year and a half of such numbers that i think could scare people back into their masks Right. Well, let's put it this way. So the numbers are, they were at, right before Delta began to bite, they were down around 130 or 140 a day in the United States. They are now up to around 250 to 270 a day. So that's, you know, if you use the 100 a day as your baseline, that's a very big leap. If you use the death toll at the height of the pandemic, when 3,000 people a day were dying, it's, you know, it's not even a tenth right. uh, of that death toll. And so you're right. The question is whether they people can be talked into being terrified again. And I, I don't, I think the answer, as Noah said, is there is a effectively a class-based difference here. And it also goes to people who, again are continuing to work out of their home. Here's the secret about people who worked in, you know, who who were the most aggressive about supporting, you know, the most extreme mitigation measures. They didn't for their livelihood have to go out. Lawyers, bankers, media people, everybody that you can sort of name in the upper upper middle classes worked in professions that made it possible for them, for us to stay home. Uh, and when you stay home in your own home, where you're working at home, guess what you don't have to do? You don't have to wear a mask eight hours a day. Of course, your kids go to school if they were allowed to go to school, as mine were. They got to wear a mask eight hours a day. But now all of a sudden the truth can be told, right? Because now we're talking about how the vast population of urban teachers who are unvaccinated, the staggering number of hospital workers who are unvaccinated, the number of people who work in senior home facilities who are unvaccinated. All of a sudden this has become a public health problem, a public policy matter. And it wasn't for the last 18 months. So the whole point was, if you follow the timing, the vaccines become available in January, right? And then there was a huge shortage, like it was impossible to get vaccinated, and they were withholding vaccines. First, they were withholding vaccines for the very old. Then they were withholding vaccines for the very old and the front-facing and, and uh, you know, uh, first responders. 
And there was a kind of mania to try to get vaccinated in any way, shape, or form that you could. That pushes into March or April. By this point, if we want to talk about teachers and schools, in theory, teachers could have been vaccinated as part of that front first responder thing in February and March. But school's over in June or in some places in May or even earlier. Uh, so it's not much you can do about that, right? But um, now it's now August you can walk in anywhere. There's not even a line. You get your vaccine and you walk out. Once again, we have a f- circumstance in which people have made a considered decision not to get vaccinated. And talk about not giving them respect. People are, the public health authorities in this country are not giving these people credit for the decision that they've made, except for the Trump voters, whom they give evil credit, right? They're only doing this because they're Trump voters and, you know, they want to blow up America anyway and they don't care if they die or anybody else or whatever. They don't believe it because they, they've they been fed all this misinformation. So let's feed them counter-misinformation, Rochelle Walensky, in order to kind of do whatever you can. But again, as Noah says, the only people who are going to comply, this is not going to make them comply, Okay, but there's there's another problem here. We've talked about this throughout the course of this pandemic with every measure that every lockdown measure, masking measure, all the measures we've seen. And it's not a small thing because it's not just that, you know, what I hear from the technocratic elite who want to see everybody mask up again, regardless of whether it'll be helpful, is, well, we just have to do this for a little while. It's just everybody's communal responsibility. The people who don't want to do it are horrible Trump voters or too selfish. They're, you know, all these terrible things. Right. The problem is the habit of mind that the public health community and right now the Biden administration is trying to cultivate in the American people, which is fear-based. It's any small risk is too large a risk to handle. What is going to happen in flu season next year if this is the baseline? If the baseline is that any risk is too much, we start to have a kind of uh, cultural moment where risk itself is no longer able to be rationally assessed and weighed against the benefits and losses of these sorts of measures. And not just with COVID, this will spread. This will spread. That mindset will spread. Yes. Um, And so, you know, what we need here is common sense. And if you want common sense, if you, if you crave common sense, particularly at this hinge moment, we're going to find out in the next couple of days, how the second quarter GDP numbers were and where we're going to go with this new uncertainty that has been introduced here, you got to go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe to the internet products of the Bonson Group, DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com, produced by David Bonson and his team at his $3 billion under management financial services firm, the Bonson Group. This is the best, most concise way to get information about the daily activities in the U.S. economy and weekly about the macroeconomic effects of politics, policy, and the interplay therein. So go to the dctoday.com, go to dividendcafe.com, sign up, subscribe for these really, really excellent products from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Uh, so the uh, uh, January 6th hearings opened yesterday uh, morning. Um, uh, I noted uh, that uh, in this bizarre way that the, that the media have, a, have an omni mind, um, I was uh, changing channels uh, when, they, when, they, uh, when they finished or you know, broke for lunch or whatever. And I first heard Jake Tapper on CNN, and then I heard Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC. And Jake Tapper is like, in a morning of sobering, horrifying, and frankly, gut-wrenching testimony. They change channels, and there is Andrea Mitchell. And Andrea Mitchell's like, it was a morning of frankly, gut-wrenching testimony. So apparently, the word, the, the phrase gut-wrenching was just in the MSM ether. <laughs> you had to you had to use the word gut wrenching, or you you know the insta cliche was gut wrenching. Um, and I don't mean to make fun of it, but it just shows how there was a kind of um, I don't know what you call it. It's sort a of predetermined. This was going to be the most you know horrifying morning of our lives. 
whether or not you know, it, it it would be or not. And um, uh, I thought looking at the video fit the video the video footage was um, was again just you know like horrifying beyond words. Uh, I thought that I got to confess that I thought the testimony of the of the of the Capitol policeman was a little performative. And I, it tilted into um, really weirdly partisan places where it almost felt like they had been coached to go directly at the Republican refusal to participate or, you know, or, or you know, or to downgrade the meaning of the of the commission, which is really beyond their writ. And they should not be their capital policemen. This is not where they should be going. Let the congressman do this. But they did it in order to provide that soundbite. And I, you know, and so any skepticism about whether or not there was a kind of alliance between them and the majority, I think, is justified. On the other hand, I don't think that Republicans have any have any excuse for their disgusting conduct in relation to this commission and what they want from the commission and how they want to pretend that what happened didn't happen. Um, it just running that video over and over again, just like makes just, it just reminds you that something untoward and horrible and unprecedented happened. Though I don't think our democracy was really at risk. Uh, it was, it's more than bad enough. And, and, and any effort to think that it wasn't is to impose a, it really is like, what do you want to believe me or your own eyes? Like, I don't want to believe that this was as bad as it looked. So I'm just going to choose not to and say that anybody who raises the question is just being mean to my my, my people. Well, and there's been like a kind of hyperbole Olympics going on with the January 6th stuff from from the moment, you know, the footage uh, hit hit the media, which has been very detrimental to allowing Amer- the American people to truly understand what that day was like for the people involved in protecting the Capitol. And, you know, I'm sorry, they, whether whatever you think of the cops, the, the Capitol Police did an extraordinary job at very little cost to human life. One person was killed, you know, from by a Capitol Police officer, given what could have happened if they if, if things had gone even a, a little bit uh, differently. And I'm horrified by the kind of the, the, the true Trumpy MAGA folks who um, on social media are saying things like, oh, these guys are obviously crisis actors. They're not even real policemen. You know, how, da- how dare they claim, make these claims? Those men were there and risked their lives to protect people in the Capitol. Like, knock it off. Knock it off. Um, especially if, you're, if you call yourself a conservative, you tend to be on the side of law enforcement and want, want to see law enforcement succeed and be able to do its job well, which isn't to say they do it perfectly, as with every profession. But even that has been, has been absolutely shunted aside for partisanship in this case. I watched a fair bit of the testimony, not all of it, a fair bit of it. Um, But I don't, you know, it might be a cliche, but I'm not sure how you would describe somebody talking about how they thought they were going to die as anything other than gut-wrenching. I don't think they're being performative. I think they thought they were going to be murdered. Uh, I think they were very close to being murdered. Um, a lot of them were probed and pressed to talk about race and racism and stuff like that. And they didn't really take the bait, um, did to a certain extent, but uh, otherwise said, you know, in the moment behaved as, as an officer should uh, in, in that event and didn't process the sort of thing until after the fact um, because it was so profoundly traumatic. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty easy to say, you know, you're giving MAGA people fodder, but they would have gotten fodder anyway because they're not, being intellectually honest, they're being dishonest. Intellectually, we know that. intellectually, they're being intellectually dishonest. It was worse. They, it was worse than intellectually dishonest. Rahim Kassam, uh, on his show The War Room, described them as Stasi agents. We have our own Stasi. Yeah. So you know they're, what? They're you discrediting themselves. I mean, whatever they're taking, they're on not discrediting themselves because they're not looking. Steve Bannon and Rahim Kassam are not looking to get credited. They don't care what we say. I mean, they may use this. So we shouldn't credit their opinion. I'm not crediting their opinion. I am citing it to indicate the extreme ugliness to which people who want to pretend that January 16th was not a bad event in American history uh, are going to talk about with 
slanderous, vicious, vile comparisons of Amer- veterans of Iraq who are fight, who are who are serving, you know, as as policemen at at the you know, at the at the at the Capitol building, uh, as agents of East, to comparing them to the agents of one of the worst totalitarian regimes that ever existed, East Germany, Stasi agents. And and that is, if you if you don't understand that if you affiliate yourself with this view that ah it was just tourism or whatever it was or nothing really bad happened or they were they were coached or as Elise Stefanik said, uh, Elise Stefanik who you know until about two minutes ago was a rational person said Nancy Pelosi was responsible for the January sixth events. If you if you want to associate yourself with these with this view, uh, you're the discredited person. I'm not crediting them. I am saying that they are they are establishing the boundary of what is historically going to be seen as a loathsome counterreaction. I mean, it's being seen now, but not 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 by not by a lot of people in our you know in sort of our general neck of the woods who don't want to who don't feel like they need to dissociate themselves. And we talked about this a little bit briefly yesterday, but this, this argument that they're being, that they're making now, this spin that like, Oh, you know, we did, we, we got kicked off the committee because Nancy Pelosi wants, doesn't want to talk about her security preparations, which were lax, And she's responsible for all this sort of thing. Although we can't really know the answer to that. Well, how do you get the answer to that? You have a January 6th commission. So they're explicitly in their minds. I don't think they're, they're gone there, but explicitly endorsing the rationale for a bipartisan investigation into the events of January 6th. I mean, it does have that, you know, the fa- the famous definition of chutzpah, which is the person who murders his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. So you have the Republicans who blocked the creation of a, of a January 6th commission now complaining that the commission that is in, in place is unfair. Um when they could actually have played a role in 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 how it was organized and and done but they explicitly decided not to do that and now their complaint is that it you know its existence uh, is going to draw a a predetermined conclusion uh it's it, it it's pretty stunning if you think i'm comfortable you know endorsing a, 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 a you know a committee on which Jamie Raskin and and uh, you know and Adam Schiff or you know eloquent spokesman uh, you got another thing coming but you know uh, that's not I I didn't walk around saying that you know these were loving people and it was tourism and that the, and that this was uh, all outside agitators and that the things that happened didn't happen and that the uh, person who was Shot by one of these Capitol policemen who was in fear for his life was is somehow a martyr to you know to to the cause of justice. I'm sorry, you know, uh, that's that's on them. And uh, with that, let me just talk to you for the last time today. Our our final sponsor today is of course our friend, the X Chair, with that LMAX temperature regulation. If you're hot, the chair will cool you down. If your office is too cold, it'll warm you up and give you some it'll give you some massage therapy for your lower back. It's the luxury supercar of office chairs. It's an amazing thing this LMAX and the and the chair already before it even introduced LMAX had that patented dynamic variable lumbar support with incredibly responsive low back support. But now you can regulate your body temperature and get massage therapy while you're working with LMAX delivering either cooling heat and either cooling or heat and massage technology directly to your core, regulating body temp, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. There's never been a better time to dish that old no-name office chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. Um. I just want to conclude by talking a little bit about uh, 
what's going on at the Olympics again. Uh, not because we talked about yesterday whether or not there's something weird going on with the way people are behaving uh, in relation to the Olympics. But this morning, I happened to be watching various newscasts and listening to various newscasts. And the lead story about the Olympics is not about – it was not about Katie Ledecky winning uh, another gold medal in, in sort of long-distance swimming. It was about Simone Biles pulling out of the individual – all-around competition, just as she had pulled out yesterday from the uh, team competition. Apparently, pulling out yesterday saved her team the silver. So the U.S. got the silver in the team competition. If she had stayed in, given where she was because of her uh, bad footing uh, after after a, a certain thing that she did, she might have uh, she might have lost them uh, a medal. And so uh, she did that. She then pulled out of the individual all around claiming that she needed to focus on her mental health. And what I'm struck by is that this is the story. The story is not Katie Ledecky's triumph, but Simone Biles's withdrawal. And the fact that yesterday, again, not to go all, you know, MAGA crazy on everybody, but uh, there was this explosion from MAGA land uh, with, uh, you know, people like uh, Charlie Kirk, who, you know, I'm sure is, you know, barely has a license to tie his shoelaces, calling Simone Biles a coward, I think, or something like that, because she pulled out of the event and, and all of that. We don't know what's going on in her head. We don't know what's going It's none of our business. She doesn't have to participate in the event or not participate in the event. But it is striking that we have this thing where her uh personal issues are, are, are the dominating news story uh about the olympics rather than the olympics themselves because they subs- they are subsumed under a general social rubric right we don't want to talk about the olympics we want to talk about black lives matter we want to talk we don't want to talk about football we want to talk about kneeling we don't want to talk about you know uh athletic achievement we want to talk about uh you know mental health and how people you know, really focus on their mental health and so I am. I'm just fascinated by this, uh, and I, I I don't know what to make of it. But Abe, you had you had two interesting thoughts on this subject, particularly relating to female gymnastics, but also, uh, and 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 then there was something about Michaela Maroney we should talk about. But Abe, go go ahead and I think <clears throat> I hope I hope I have one interesting thought. I can't. I'm not sure I had two, but okay. So. When it comes to the Olympics, generally, I'm I'm a, a big grouch. I don't like the Olympics for a number of reasons. Um, I'll just state them very briefly before homing in on this uh, point. Um, first of all, they elevate uh, bad regimes. Uh, they they put us on literally an even playing field uh, with them, and I think it is a very bad arena um, for international competition. Uh, it doesn't matter <clears throat> ultimately. Uh, if one country outdoes another in sports, I think things like GDP, relative freedom of citizens, uh, uh, relative uh, poverty levels, I think I think that's the real world uh, competition between nations and it's more important. But on top of all this, one of my uh, objections uh, to the Olympics is that what goes into getting a young athlete to compete at the Olympics particularly when it comes to gymnastics and female gymnastics, is child abuse. The, uh, the programs that these, they start out as kids, kids are put through, they're, what their lives consist of, the, the rigor in terms of what they go through physically, mentally, um, the, 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 they, they undergo, as starting as kids, a level of pressure that know that 99.9% of all adults will never um, experience uh, on top of what they put their bodies through, on top of the isolation, on top of the expectations uh, in terms of their conduct and everything else. Um, so I, it, is, it is shocking to me it is that more um, Olympic-level athletes, certainly um, at, at, at her level, um, don't crack up. I mean, it is to me completely understandable to have a mental breakdown under these conditions. I think this is an important observation because we have these two, uh, you know, examples of this. I mean, the obvious and most horrifying example is the Ohio State 
female gymnastics squad whose whose chief you know is now in jail for a hundred years for sexual for literal sexual abuse of and they're not kids at this point right they're 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 college students but literal sexual abuse on the campus of Ohio State for many 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 years um and then if you want to talk about kids you have the the horror stories that emerged from Bella Caroli's boarding academy of gymnastics in Texas uh, where he came after he guided Nadia Comaneci to her you know unprecedented victories and and perfect tens I think in the 76 Olympics, uh, maybe the 80 Olympics. Anyway, he, he defected. He came here. He started this academy. And, um, and the stories out of it are, are, are beyond belief. Food restriction, uh, you know, sort of like solitary confinement if you, you know, if you didn't listen to every word he said. And so, yeah, I mean, there is a real history here of. And Larry Nasser, that's the most. Well, that's what one. didn't. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, that yeah was the not US Ohio gymnastics. State. No, well, he was the U.S. gymnastics doctor for like right. what, more than a decade, and he abused even Simone Biles. Right. I mean, this guy was yeah. A horrible, okay, well, horrible. then I'm then I'm then I'm confusing. I'm sorry, I got I'm, I'm confusing two things. I meant Larry Nasser. Ohio okay. State was a different thing, so I'm sorry, I got this wrong. Um, which is which is not unusual, but um, uh, you know, then we have this. I mean, this is just an interesting thing because the question is, if you are a parent, you're ambitious for your kids. If we if we have kids that we're intellectually or academically ambitious for, right? We, we, you know, we believe in pressure. We believe in putting them, you know, making sure that they, they expand their, their brains and, you know, and, and, and do the hard work and are really oppressed. Uh, so th- that would be the analogy to this is that you have a, you have a kid who shows exceptional talent in something and th- they could be the best in the world. And so you want to make it possible for them to be the best that they could be and then kind of like be this person who does things with their body that other people can't do and that can really be a kind of um you know benchmark for for human achievement or something like that um on the other hand like this thing where these these kids like they go and they they if they're a swimmer they swim seven hours a day uh if they're you know if they're a tennis player they play tennis eight hours a day if they're a skier like lindsey vaughn they ski and they go and you know and and uh, michael phelps said this morning on the today show that you know he famously like has had battles with depression that after he won he said it was very hard at the olympics for him after he won his golds, and he did this, I think, twice or three times, once the event was over, because he had absolutely no idea what to do with himself. He had no plan. He had no program. He had, he had done what he had set out to do, and he was without resources when it came to just sitting still or taking, or taking it in or having won. All he was was a machine of possibility getting up to this point where he would achieve what he wanted to achieve, at which point he felt hollow and empty and purposeless. That can't be good, right? It just can't be good. It's a weird thing to build on. Just like as we watch football now, I think we're all kind of horrified to think that you know, some not inconsiderable number of the people that we're watching are playing are in 30 years going to, you know, be uh, in horrible neurological and physical condition with early onset dementia and stuff like that for our entertainment. You know, it's creepy. But I also think there's something bizarre about the focus on the non-athletic when we talk about athletics. That's another version of how uh, the uh, total ultra elite dominance of journalism uh, just tends to take everything and put it on the focus of whatever is the journalistic obsession of the moment. I do have a slight theory about why they do that, though, with, with regard why gymnastics has been brought into, or you know, sport has been brought into this, and it's the it's the uh, elite suspicion of excellence that we see throughout the culture right now, whether it's you know tests in the meritocracy and education, whether it's, you know, elite sport and any, any kind of uh, excellence that's, that's uh, objectively measured is now under suspicion because for all the reasons that we talk about systemic, this systemic, that, so they, the narrative is very quick on a lot of these things for that reason. If someone's excellent, there must be a dark side, right? There must be something wrong. We have to focus on all the reasons why excellence is actually potentially dangerous. That those words spoken by our own black belt, 
She's our black belt, and she <laughs> didn't, unlike the judo contestant uh, in, in in Tokyo, to get her black belt, uh, she didn't need to have her coach slap her across the face. I did not face. get slapped. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know what slapped. I'm talking about, just type in judo Germany into Google, and you will see this film clip of this uh, German uh, female judo uh, athlete. Uh, but just before she goes into the ring, her coach st- walking up to her, then slapping her across slapping the face. Her. And then she said, because she didn't win, I wish he had slapped me harder, which is just like 50 shades of judo, everybody. And we'll we'll reconvene tomorrow. Uh, For Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.